It's really important for us to see that God has not changed, um, that He deals with Christians um, in the same way, truly, that He did with the children of Israel. And that's why we see many of the words in the book of Exodus that are used again in the New Testament, words like law and covenant, blood, Passover. We also need to remember Jesus's words in Matthew when he said, I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets, but I came to fulfill them. So in short, we can't understand the New Testament unless we look into this Old Testament. And Paul actually reflects on some of the events of the book uh, from the book of Exodus in his writings to the church at Corinth. And he says that these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil as they did. And, you know, on the other hand, I also want to point out that it's much easier now because we don't need, you know, some great number of priests or rituals or special buildings, special places. You know, um, the Apostle John, he wrote, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So when we pray now, we can enter the holiest place, which they couldn't do back then. They had to go through the priest, but we can enter that place because this veil was torn by what Jesus did for us on the cross. So it's unhindered now for us to come into the throne room. And so with that, um, I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Jed. And what he'll be doing is uh, going through an overview of some of the- Do you want me to still pray? I do, I do. Yep. Okay. All right, Jed, hold on. Let's get the prayer in. We're going to pray. We're going to pray because we need the spirit to come and speak through Jed and, and prepare our hearts, prepare the soil of our hearts. Amen. But Jed is going to go through, I'm just trying to lay out what the format is for today. So Jed's going to go through, um, uh, you know, a little bit of the overview of what we've been reading. And then at some point afterwards, we're going to open it up for um, interaction. And so we want to encourage you to participate. It's um, participatory, so you can feel free to jump in if you feel that you have a question or an insight that the Holy Spirit's given to you. We want this to be the body of Christ coming together to learn from one another as well as we um, journey through the Word. And so with that, Pastor Sylvia, will you lead us in prayer? And, uh, and then we'll turn it over to Jed. Amen, absolutely. So excited to be here. And I know each of you are as well, because guess what? This is the place where we get to come together and also meet with him. Um, and I know some of you ran in from work. So we just want to take a few moments in order for you to focus and remember that he is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the one and only God. Oh, precious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you because you truly are the Lord, our God. We thank you for this day because you brought us a mighty, mighty long way. We thank you, as Krista said earlier, we get the privilege because of you, Lord Jesus Christ, that we can now come boldly into the throne room of grace to obtain the mercy and the grace for when we need it. For you played the full penalty and gave us the ability to have access to the throne of God. Glory and honor all belong unto you. So we come just to bow down before you. We come to exalt our hearts in harmony and unity, declaring that you and you alone are the God, 
our God. We come inviting you to come, come, come and lead us every step of the way. Father, we thank you for all that you have placed in your servant to, so that you may use him on tonight. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for all of the grace and the mercy that you have bestowed upon him to give and for each one of us to receive. This is your dwelling place, for we are the temple of you, God, the very living stones. And we thank you that your word has already promised us. We're two or more joined together. There in the midst are you. Thank you for being in our midst. And thank you, Lord God, for allowing your word to go forward so that your people may be forever changed and you receive all the praise, honor, and glory that is worthy of your name. Thank you, thank you, thank you for coming. Thank you for having your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello, brothers and sisters. Great to be with you again. Um, hope you're enjoying reading through Exodus. And uh, Israel is on a journey. And we are on a journey as uh, the pilgrim people of God um, on our way out of slavery because of a promise on our way to the promised land that God's going to give us where he's going to be our God forever and we'll be his people forever. And we are covered by the blood of the lamb. And so Exodus has some uh, towering themes as Krista and Sylvia have shared. And I'm just going to touch on some of these things tonight and, and then going to lean into a conversation together, ask some questions and hear from you uh, here in a few minutes. So, um, but I felt like right now was a good, a good time to kind of reset where we are because, you know, we were the, the, we, we read through Exodus 22 through chapter 40. Some of these chapters are getting into the, the details of the law. God is giving a covenantal law to his covenantal people. And he's being really detailed, very meticulous and very specific on how he wants things done. He's giving them the rules of Papa's house. And, and uh, you know, sometimes when we can read through this, we can start to, and he's being very specific about how he wants the tabernacle created, for example. And so as human beings, we can start to read some of these. And I've talked to Christians who are like, man, I, I get to some of these scripture portions and I start to get, it starts to get a little dry. I don't, you know, the, the, the table is 36 inches high and it was this many cubits long and this many, this much bronze was used and gold. How does this relate to me? And I want to, Start there about why why does this relate to us today? Why are we reading Exodus? Why is there value in this? And what is God after? And I want to say, you know, as, as kind of we head into it, he's after three things uh, that I felt like as I was praying about tonight to share with us. Uh, he's after love. He's after order. Right. And he's after and, and, and he's giving himself as an example of beauty. So I'm going to talk about love, order and beauty in these chapters in Exodus as themes to have us meditate on as we talk about what is unfolding in the, in the lives of the Israelites. But before I do that, one, one thing I need to say to set it up, God is a covenant keeping God. He, his work with humanity is, is covenantal in nature. He, men, men and women don't make covenants to God. God makes covenants with us. And covenant is a super important idea for us to understand because we don't have many covenants today other than the covenant of marriage. Um, and so we're used to, particularly in the West, contracts. We're used to um, setting up a, an agreement between two parties that says, um, you know, if Krista and I were injured and I'm going to paint Krista's house, she'll say, uh, I'll pay you $1,500 to paint my house. 
If I don't paint her house, she doesn't owe me $1,500. That's a contract. Um, it's conditional. A covenant is a little bit different. A covenant is unilateral. So when you married your spouse or when anyone gets married before God and they say, I am promising to love this person through sickness and in health, rich or poor, uh, you know, without any condition, I promise to love this person until I die. That is a covenant. It's unilateral. It's not conditional on what that person does. Although we do tend to treat the covenant of marriage more like a contract these days, unfortunately. But we need to understand that when God cut covenant with Abraham, he's accomplishing something that he really set in motion in Genesis chapter three. And we have to go back there of understanding why is God giving them a very detailed law in Exodus chapters, really 19 through the end of the book and into Leviticus. Uh, he's really giving them, he ends up giving them 613 laws. Uh, why? Why is he giving this people this much detailed law? And we have to go back and remember, you know, when man sinned, God began to unfold his purpose into the earth. And it was the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. Jesus said, I came to destroy the works of darkness. He's the seed of the woman, right? Paul makes that clear in the book of Galatians. And so God is bringing the promised Messiah forth to save mankind. And so we can look at the promise he makes to Abraham. He says, through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So he selects a people. He gives them the sign of circumcision. They enter into a covenant. He cuts all the animals in half. He has Abraham cut them. But God is the one that walks through the pieces of these animals. And that's an ancient way that covenant was cut. Was It basically is saying, we just slaughtered this animal and split this animal or these animals literally in half. And we're going to meet in the middle of this and have a covenantal meal. Usually it was bread and wine. We're going to break bread and we're going to enter into an agreement. And it's what we're saying is, let it be done to me what we just did to these animals. We just killed these animals. It's a death sentence. If I don't, if I don't fulfill what I've promised to do in this covenantal meal, let it be done to me. And so it's important to understand Abraham doesn't go to the middle to meet God. If you remember the story, God actually puts Abraham to sleep. And God passes through the animal pieces because God's going to fulfill his promise. He knows Abraham can't actually fulfill this through obedience. Abraham is declared righteous because he believed God. It's faith in God that is, is how we are declared righteous. Faith in Christ is the ultimate progression here. And that's my point, is that what God started in Genesis 3 began to take on more definition with Abraham. And now it's taking on even more definition through Moses and through the Sinai covenant. But it's going to take on a little bit more when, he, when we get to David. And he enters into a covenant with David and says, from your line, David, there's going to be a ruler forever on the throne, on your throne before me forever. That's a covenant that God makes with David and this lineage of David. And the tribe of Judah. And we know that's Jesus. So when you read in the New Testament, son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. You have to understand the person who's saying that is, is that is a declaration of faith in the covenantal faithfulness of God. Because they're recognizing that Jesus is the promised seed because he's the son of David. And they're confessing that with their mouth because their heart is filled with faith that he is the one that God is sending. I hope that all makes sense. I know we're just touching on covenant, but it's important to understand this is a group of slaves that have been in slavery for over 400 years. They have no culture except what Egypt taught them. And God has taken them out of Egypt now. The Passover was one night 
They were in Egypt, then they left. But getting Egypt out of the people is an entirely different process. And so what we have is that's called sanctification. And God is marrying this people through covenant. He, he relates to them as a husband. He calls himself the husband of Israel. He also calls himself the father. And so there's parental aspects of God's relationship with his people. And there's also some husbandy, husbandry type dynamics that God himself personifies as we're going to go on the story with Israel. But here he is, Mount Sinai. He's giving the law to Moses um, and he's unfolding things. And I want to talk about you know, as we, we can get into each of these specific laws and get into the weeds on what God is, what God is meaning when he's talking about, you know, when your neighbor's donkey falls into a well, this is what I want you to do. And, and you know, I don't want to get into the weeds on each specific law. But what I want to make is a point. The first point I want to make is God is teaching the people how to love. In other words, you know, Jed, when you're walking on the way and it's the Sabbath and I've told you to rest but Sylvia's donkey's in the well. I want you to stop what you're doing. And I want you to be a brother to your sister. I want you to help her get her donkey out of the well. But what if it's her son that's in the well? Well, if you're going to help her with a donkey, a son is more infinitely more valuable than donkey. So of course, it presupposes that I would help her with her son or her daughter, right? And so God is giving a law but it's not about outward obedience. And you see this in the words of Christ in particular when he comes and he says, you've heard Moses say this, but one who is greater than Moses is here to tell you, right? You've heard Moses say, don't commit murder, but I'm here to tell you, if you even curse your brother in your heart, you're, gonna, you're subject to the fires of hell. He fulfills the law with meaning because God wrote the law and Jesus is God. And so, but God's intent in giving the law was to teach this people who are coming out of slavery how to relate to him and how to relate to one another and how to learn how to love. So the, the word law, we translate Torah into the word law, but in the Hebraic understanding, it is more the idea of this is the teaching. This is the way. You know, God has ways. Um, you know, the law existed before God gave it. Murder didn't become illegal on Mount Sinai, right? When Cain killed Abel right after the fall in the garden, it was wrong. And God holds Cain to account for that. Um, there, the tithe didn't come into existence because God all of a sudden starts giving law about tithe. You know, Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. We already read about that. And so there's ways that God, because he's the creator of everything, he knows what is good for mankind. He knows what's right for creation. And because of sin, everything has been shifted off its, its, intended, its intended destination. And God has had to intervene to get it back on course. And he's going to redeem and restore and rescue humanity. And, and it's going to be better than, it, than, than we possibly could have imagined. But this is part of the reason he's giving the law is that this people is, is lost. They don't have a culture and they don't know how to love. And they're in the desert. They have nothing. They have to depend on him alone for their food. Remember, he's giving them manna every day. They've got to depend on him for water. They have to depend on him for everything. Their clothes don't even wear out. You know, God is taking care of them. We have a testimony in, this, in these chapters where Moses is with God for 40 days and 40 nights. He does not eat or drink. I don't know how that works. I don't know how the math adds up. But somehow in God's presence, 
I mean, Jesus said, doing the will of my father, I don't need food because my food is doing the will of my father. Somehow there's a place we can arrive spiritually where when we're in God's presence and he sustains us. I mean, he created us. Our very breath that comes out of our mouth, the same word for the, in the Hebrew for, for the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, wind is the Ruach, breath is Ruach. The very breath of God, the Ruach of God filled Adam's nostrils and it's in our lungs today. The fact that I can even take this next breath is only because God is allowing me to do that. We are dependent, utterly dependent on God. And he's, and he's teaching this people how to relate to him and how to relate to one another. And part of Israel's call, if you remember in Exodus 19, he says, you're going to be a nation of priests. And in Isaiah 49, he calls Israel to be a light to the nations. And obviously Jesus is the highest fulfillment as the Israelite of all Israelites of being the light to the Gentiles. But Israel's call was to be a light. They were to teach all the other nations how to walk with God. They were to disciple the nations. And of course they have, because all the scripture came through Jewish people and the apostles. And we are saved today because 120 uh, Jewish men and women waited on the Holy Spirit to be poured out in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And a number of them went and obeyed Christ to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. And so we're a recipient of the Ruach, the wind, the Holy Spirit of God being poured out and released the four corners of the earth. And so he's teaching this people who are called to be a priestly nation. He's teaching them his ways. He's giving them his oracles. He's letting them into his heart to feel what it means and, and how he wants us to be in love with him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have no other God before me, right? And Jesus said the law can be summed up, love God. Throw your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you do these, all the, the rest of the laws, 613 of them, hang on those two commands. So the first impulse of why God's giving this, this law and these teachings, this way to his people, is to teach him how to love. And I, I think it's important that we remember that. Number two, it's about order. Um, we got to remember, sin is, is in the picture, and God is, you know, he's aware of our sinfulness. Um, He's aware of our mess. He's aware, you know, when Jesus is talking about marriage and divorce, he actually says, look, divorce was given as a concession for the hard heartedness of man. We have hard hearts. We choose our own way. I mean, how many times does God call Israel a stubborn and rebellious people in the scriptures? I don't know how many times it's got to be dozens. Um, <laughs> we love our own wealth. We love our own way. That's the original sin in the garden was if you eat this fruit, you're going to be like God. You'll know good and evil. And it's self-authority. It's ruling your own life and coming out from the authority of God. That was the temptation. And so the part of giving of the laws that teaches how to love, but it's also to bring order to human relationships because human relationships get messy because of sin. And so just like marriage, there's a law about divorce that God says, okay, on these cases, Divorce is permitted because, but that wasn't his intentional plan. His plan was never for divorce to be in this picture. That's God is a covenant keeping God. And we have to understand covenant again, going back to covenant to call someone a covenant breaker in the ancient world was the highest form of insult. Um, it's like, 
the idea of like our word is our bond. And Jesus says, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Don't take a vow if you're not going to fulfill it. Like these are our ancient principles of like when God says he's going to do something, he is going to do it. His word is, he never goes back on his word. The Bible says he is faithful even when we are unfaithful. Amen. But God makes concessions because of our unfaithfulness. And so part of the law is to give instruction. When things break down, what do you do? When there's a murder, how do you handle that? Well, here's, and God says, this is what I need you to do. This is what I want you to do. When there's theft, right? When he's already given the 10 commandments, don't, don't steal. But when somebody steals, this is how you handle that. And so it's like he gives a law that's perfect, knowing that imperfect man is going to mess up that perfect law. And part of the law is dealing with man's imperfections and sins and teaching humanity about without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. You know, and here's just a, a question for thought, a rhetorical question. Did the blood of bulls and goats ever really forgive us? Is there intrinsic value in that blood somehow? Or is God continuing to show an example of the wages of sin is death? I am holy and I want you to be holy. And when you sin, death has to occur in order for relationship to be restored. He overlooked sin. And the blood and bulls of goats is not really holy. God is teaching, even in the sacrificial system, he's teaching humanity how to understand the gravity of our sinfulness. And what is required is severe. So he's bringing order to human relationships, order in how he himself is prescribing how he wants to be worshipped. And we have to remember, everything that Moses is giving the people of God, he's receiving as an oracle, a direct face-to-face relationship with the living God. And it's as a pattern of what is in heaven that God is giving Moses. And it's super specific. I mean, we've already talked about the table is to be these dimensions. It's going to have this much gold in it, this much bronze in it, this much silver in it. This is what the curtains need to get made of. This is how I want the priests to wear. This is their uniform before me. These are the jewels that are going to be in the high priest's ephod as he worships before me. When, you, when you're going to ordain them, I want you to put blood on their right earlobe, their right thumb, their right big toe. Guys, I, I, don't, I don't know why that's in there. I'm sure there's plenty of teaching somewhere that can explain that. I, but this is God is being super specific as he lays out, this is how I am prescribing. This is what I want. And he's laying it out to these people who are going to be priests. His desire is that they fall in love with him. And that they would disciple the nations eventually into walking with God. So love is an impulse in God's heart. Order, when things break down, when man doesn't follow that law, here's what I want you to do to restore relationship and to uh, purge the community of sin in some cases. And the last thing I want I want us to focus on is beauty. Um, I shared this on one of the breadcrumbs, but I don't know how many people watch breadcrumbs, but... Um, I was just blown away as I was listen, listening to all of the amounts of gold and precious jewels that were in the tabernacle. You know, first of all, this is a slave people who plundered Egypt. 
So everything that all the gold, all the silver, all the bronze, where did they get it? They got it because God put the dread of Israel on Egypt as they were leaving and the Egyptians gave it to them. They plundered the Egyptians. So this is gold, silver, and bronze that was never theirs to begin with. They only have it because God gave it to them through Egypt. And then there's a free will offering and they give it wholeheartedly. I love that. There was more than enough for what, I mean, I love that. There, God is a God of abundance. And I did the calculations and just the gold, silver, and bronze, there was over 2,000 pounds of gold. I mean, yeah, 2,193 pounds of gold, 7,545 pounds of silver, 5,310 pounds of bronze. If we just said what that's worth today, this was a $50 million project just on that precious metal, basically. It's in that ballpark. When's the last time you've been in a $50 million building decked out in gold and silver and bronze? When's the last time you've seen uh, ash buckets made of bronze? When's the last time you've seen you know, acacia wood inlaid with gold filigree and everything was decorated with gold? Why? Is God materialistic? No. God is beautiful. He's beautiful. The, the robes that he had them wear. Beautiful. Heaven is a beautiful place. We know from the book of Revelation that the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem are all these stones, precious stones. The streets are gold, the clearest gold. God is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. And this beautiful God is the only one who deserves our worship. And we can read these chapters and come to a conclusion like, well, I'm a little bit bored with Leviticus, or I'm, I'm a little bit bored with, the, with Exodus. And, you know, God's not boring. We are. <laughs> I don't mean that, uh, you know, I'm just being honest. We get so satisfied with things that are lesser. You know, we'll, we'll go to an art museum and ooh and ah at these pictures of landscapes and, you know, beachscapes and nightscapes and starry skies. These are, guys, these are replications at their very, very best. I don't care who the artist is. The most exquisite artist in the world who painted the most exquisite uh, sunset on the beach it's a still frame, a replication of what was already happening that God created. God is the one that painted the sky. God's the one that made that waterfall. He alone is worthy because he is, he is the most beautiful. And these chapters, we can read them. And, and I think the Holy Spirit wants us to be in the story and to be lost in wonder. Like there was a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, they saw God in their camp. They, where's God? He's right there because there's a pillar of fire. You know, the, there's a pillar of fire at the tent of meeting when Moses is in there. I mean, and this is, again, covenants are progressive. Paul makes the argument, we actually have a better covenant because of Jesus. There's more glory in the new covenant. God's not dwelling in a tent 
made by the hands of man. He's dwelling in our hearts now. He's come as close as our next breath. He lives inside of us. Our, the glory we have in the new covenant, we have a better high priest. We have a better shed blood. I mean, this is the book of Hebrews. But God wants us to remember, I think, his glory and how beautiful he is. How majestic. You know, there's as, as in, ingenious as humans can be sometimes, we can make all this artificial intelligence, these robots, and, but no one has ever created a machine like the human body. Not once. We can cultivate and steward a garden. We can make roses look really, really beautiful, but we can't create a rose. Everything is still reproducing after its own kind because that's what God set up in the garden. Unfortunately, men are starting to get into, you know, wonky genetics and messing with God's plans, but that's not going to come to anything good. We were called, our part of our call was to be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion over God's creation, to be the, the, the cultivators of what he's created. But man is always trying to outreach and, and, and overreach into something that doesn't, it's not his domain. We're not the ones that created. We are, we are created. We're the creatures. He's the creator. And part of the majesty of these chapters is to remind us of the beauty of God. There's only one beautiful, and this is how he wants us to worship him. You know, when you come, when you, can you imagine going in to seeing the brazen altar and the wash basin and all the blood of all these animals that are being slaughtered because of sin? You know, if you've ever seen an animal slaughtered, it's not a pleasant experience. Death is costly. But God's making his people experience these realities, and they're also experiencing the, his glory and his presence. He wants to be with his people. That's what he says over and over again. Like, I, I'm, I want to be, I'm going to be their God, and they're going to be my people. This is about intimacy. As messed up and as sinful as humanity is, God is wanting to tabernacle with us. And, of course, that manifests in its highest form in the sending of his only son, to die for us and redeem us uh, in Jesus Christ. So these are some thoughts that I had as, as I was looking at these, at these chapters. One last little fun one I'll throw out. Um, we can't prove this. I'm not, never going to be dogmatic about it. But I was thinking, you know, Moses, there's a portion in this, in this uh, stretch where Moses, again, he goes up with God 40 days, 40 nights. And when he comes down, remember, his face is beaming, like shining with the Shekinah glory of God so much that people can't even look at him. Do you remember that? And so he's veiling his face because of the glory of God. And, you know, God is outside of time and space. And we know that Moses had a revelation of Jesus because in Deuteronomy, he actually says, look, a prophet's going to come after me and you need to do everything this one says. That's he knows Jesus is coming. And so how does he know? What if on the Mount of Transfiguration in the promised land, Jesus is standing with two other people, Elijah and Moses. And they're having a conversation. And we don't know what they're talking about, but Jesus shines forth his glory. Um, and the disciples are blown away. Peter, James and John are there. 
I just wonder, I mean, God is outside of time and space. We know he translates. I mean, Philip the Evangelist gets translated from one location. He's in one geographical place, and then boom, he's by the Holy Spirit. He's located somewhere else preaching the gospel instantaneously. I don't know how it works. I just know God's very, very big, and he's not, I'm not going to put him in any boxes. But I just, like, wow, what if God took Moses somewhere? He wasn't eating and drinking. He was already being supernaturally sustained. What if God just, boop, put him there with Jesus, and he saw the promised land, and he saw the whole story, and he's shining because Christ's face and Christ's glory was on him, and he comes down, and he's trying to tell the people of Israel who God is. He's, he's a man who doesn't have the speech to be able to articulate what he's experienced, um, but he, he's just set on fire by the glory of God. Remember, he's crying out to the Lord. We're not going to go. If you're not going with us, we're not going to go. But show me your glory. He cries out, show me your glory. And the Lord says, my goodness is going to pass before you. And I'll show you. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. Well, I, I don't know. I just like to think about these things sometimes because God is beautiful. He's really, really big. And there's these little mysteries sometimes that occur, like, what is going on here? Where you're not eating and drinking, and your face is shining with the glory of God. What were those 40 days and 40 nights like? And the miracle of just Moses wrote these first five books of the Bible. Think about all the detail that's in these five books. He's writing about history that he wasn't alive to see. He's not writing from personal experience. He is literally, he's taking dictation from Yahweh. Remarkable, transcendent beauty, glory, and a, and a progressive plan of God to bring about the birth of Christ through a covenantal people who he, he knows they're going to miss it. He tells them before they even go in the promised land, he says, you're, you're not going to you're not going to obey me and I'm going to have to scatter you, but I'm going to regather you back here. I mean, before they take one step into the promised land, he says, you're going to blow it. But I have a plan to bring you back because I'm faithful to my promises. And so as we think about these things, let's land the plane there. And I'll ask a few questions and we can open it up for a conversation. God is good. God is love. God is faithful. His word will perform all of its intended purpose and it will never return to him void. And so here's some questions for us as we kind of tip into a conversation. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts uh, and feel free to fire questions back too. And some of these questions, guys, we're just going to, part of the great thing about a great question is we don't have an answer. We're just going to look at the majesty of God and be like, man, we don't know. God is so good and big and beyond our ability to comprehend. We cannot comprehend the incomprehensible. The finite can never comprehend the infinite, except that God gives us revelation of himself. And that's why we're reading his word is that we would grow in wisdom and knowledge and revelation of God and, and in Christ. So, so question number one, in the giving of the law, why do we struggle with the law? Human beings can fall into two camps generally, legalism and license. You know, in other words, like the Pharisees, we're going to adhere to the outward 
obedience of the law. But Jesus said, look, on the outside, you're like a whitewashed tomb. Inside, you're full of dead man's bones. Legalism itself is not what God's after. Neither is license, where we don't follow God's law. We do whatever we want, self-rule. So I'd love to hear some, some of your thoughts on what is it about God's law that makes it so hard for us to internalize it and walk in obedience to his ways. Any thoughts out there? You know, I just want to say, I think that in our generation specifically, and probably through many others, but I think in ours right now, um, part of the reason is because there, there are other gospels. There um, is a, a huge movement of love and grace without a balanced gospel of who God is. And so there's a lot of even those who uh, are preaching that basically um, just acknowledge Jesus um, and that's it. You're in almost like fire insurance. You know, he loves you. He's a God of love, never understanding that he is also a God of justice and he's a God of wrath. And um, that we first, before we can even approach him, have to repent, you know? And so I think that there's some of it is because people are unfortunately being taught wrong, um, you know, under those who, you know, the Bible refers to as um, uh, um, shepherds, blind guides that, that, that themselves don't understand and are therefore misleading others. And, um, you know, and the only way we can have the authenticating light to know what is truth and discern truth is that we are reading this word because this word is what's going to illuminate to us where there's error. You know, and it says that we're supposed to rightly divide the word. And if a word can be rightly divided, it can be wrongly divided, you know. And so I think um, I listen, I love the gospel of grace. I know that um, my salvation is a free gift that I cannot earn and did not deserve. And it is nothing more than what Jesus did on the cross. And I'm accepting that as the basis of my salvation. But there's then what you referred to earlier, there's this call to sanctification. And there's there's many people who do preach that there's nothing else for us to do. I, in fact, was in a church service where the pastor was saying, there's nothing for you to do, nothing. Jesus said it, it is finished. It is the finished work of the cross. And that was his gospel message. But the reality is what Jesus was finished with was he was finished accomplishing what he needed to do to bring this about. Because then he commissioned us and he said, go. There was something for us to do, go and make disciples, teaching them to do all that I have commanded you. There is something for us to do in this, you know, and we are even, you know, where Paul came back to the churches uh, that he was ministering to. And he's like, hey, you guys should be on meat, but you're still on milk. He's like, what's going on? You're still in these elementary teachings. And he was calling the elementary teachings uh, the resurrection from the dead. He was like, that's an elementary teaching. He's like, you guys should be well further along in the revelation and the understanding because, you know, we do go from milk to meat, you know, but there are many places where people are not being fed, you know, the, and, and many that are not even being fed the truth. And the problem is, and I'll stop, but the problem is um, we have to really be cautious with truth that is mixed with lies or truth that is a is not full truth where there's omissions because even an omission is still a lie. And Jesus said a little bit of leaven spoils the whole batch. So we can't have any, we can't have any lies mixed in. We can't have any watered down version. 
We have to abide in truth. Yeah, Paul talks about the law being the tutor. It's our guardian until Christ comes. That's in Galatians. And so there's a training element of the law. And I was praying about this today, and the Lord was giving me kind of a picture of, you know, um, fire existed, you know, as before your children were born. You know, like fire was real before I had my children. So the stove was already hot before they came on the scene. And I can't explain to them what fire is when they're 18 months old. It's just don't touch that. Right? Don't take the fork and put it into the light socket. Um, I'm not going to, I can't explain electricity to you right now. You're not old enough to understand electricity. One day you will be, and we'll have some conversation about it. But right now, don't do it. No. Uh, traffic existed before uh, my kids were there. The streets were busy. Uh, for me as a dad, it's like, don't cross the street without looking both ways. Don't do it. I'm not going to explain to you how vehicular uh, traffic works right now. I'm not going to explain to you carburetors and engines and wheels and, and driving wheels and, 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 and street signs. You're not able to comprehend that yet. For you, don't ever cross this street without holding my hand. And, and so, as Chris is saying, like there's a, <laughs> you know, God is sanctifying us and he's teaching us as we walk along with him. Some of this is God is teaching the people, don't put the fork in the light socket. Don't do it. And as we move forward, these, there's elementary things. And then as we get more mature in Christ, we understand more of the, uh, the deeper things in God's heart. Um, but his heart as a dad is, you know, the law again, preexisted him giving the law. These things were, were real, you know, it was wrong to murder before he said it was wrong to murder because that's the way that God created the universe to operate. And so when people say I'm no longer under the law, the truth is you're no longer, if you're in Christ, you're no longer under the penalty of the law. It's still wrong to commit murder. Jesus didn't. Jesus coming and dying for you didn't mean it's okay for you to go murder your next door neighbor. Still wrong to commit adultery. You, because he fulfilled the law, and if you put your faith in him, you aren't going to suffer the wrath of failing to live up to the law. But it doesn't mean that law is no longer operative. The stove is still hot. Electricity is still going to be in that current. Don't do it, right? We understand that with the moral law. So I hope this is making sense, but I mean, we can, there's thousands of pages of writing on the law. So I don't want to get too lost in the weeds, but I uh, hope that understands that, that Paul says the law was to be there to teach us as young uh, believers until Jesus comes. And then he gives us the law of love, the law of Christ. And he has paid our penalty for failing to, to be righteous under the law. Jesus paid that penalty for us. Man. And I think in unpacking that, part of it is too, like people grasping the concept of what is happening at that exchange until Christ comes, until our heart is in a place that we don't want to um, do things that, that hurt God's heart, until we're at a place where it says, I know you said thou shalt not, but Lord, I don't want to. I don't want to because I know it grieves your heart and I love you so much and I've come to know you and I don't want to do anything that would separate me from you. You know, because we have the scriptures that say, if you cherish iniquity in your heart, he won't even hear you. He won't even hear your prayer. 
I don't want like my prayers to be cut off from the Lord, but he says he won't violate his word. So if he has said that's a truth, I need to understand that truth. And I don't want to have anything that would hinder me. And so that's part of that maturity is that now that I know that I'm like, okay, Lord, search my heart, search my heart. Is there any wicked way in me? You know, just like David, his prayer was, and that's the place that we're coming in this process. And then we get into this place where we just, you know, that's how love fulfills the law. We begin to love God so much that we wouldn't want to do these things because we love him. Amen. And that's exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you love me, then you will obey me. And so what does that mean? You know, when we look at the New Testament and we look at what Jesus said. Now, I don't want to even look like I'm advocating because something blew me away. I had a pastor tell me once, say, you know, if you're going to read the Bible, only read what's in red and what Jesus said. I said, you know, all Bibles don't have it in red. So you might be in trouble. Think about that for a minute. But here's the point. The point is that when we look at scripture and we look at what Jesus said, and when uh, there are false doctrines and false teachings that are out there that have told people that the law no longer applies to you, then what I say is when you look at what Jesus said, Jesus did not make it easier on us. And he did not advocate that I, I died, so now you're free to sin. That is a lie from the pit. It mm. is. He died to free us from sin, not to free us to sin. And if you look at it, he made it much harder. Go to the beat. If we just look at the um, Matthew chapter 5, what we call the Beatitudes, that made life much more difficult as a Christian. I'm going to give you an example. In the Old Testament, it says an eye for an eye. Jesus said, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. So I am here to say that he raised the bar of love. He raised the bar of holiness. He raised the bar of walking in him because those are the things that he did. He says, if you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you have committed adultery. Jesus said that. He also says that only they who endure to the end shall be saved. When we really look at it, and as you said earlier, when he said it's finished, what was finished was him paving the way so that I am now free from the bondage of sin. Satan is no longer my taskmaster. And because I am free in Christ, and now I have the liberty to do what God created me to do in the first place, and that is to walk and live unto him, it is easier because he didn't leave me to do it on my own. He said, I'm going to send you another helper, and the helper is the Holy Spirit. And so when we surrender our lives unto God, surrender. Bible says, submit unto God, resist the devil, and he'll flee. Submitting is the first step. Surrendering is the total step. When I surrender my life to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit never leads us into sin. He may lead you into the wilderness, just like he did Christ, but Christ did not sin in the wilderness. 
And neither will you and I if we stay surrendered to the Holy Spirit. The Bible is really clear that God cannot tempt us to sin. Why? Because sin is not in him. Now, will he test us? In Job, he says that he visits us daily and he tests us moment by moment. So every moment I'm being tested, but that is not so that I can have liberty to sin. Does God understand if we make a mistake? Absolutely. But the prerequisite for him having paid the price for the penalty of my sin is repentance. You must agree with God that you have done something wrong. And if you do not, then that's why he says, broad is the road that leads to destruction, narrow is the gate, and few find their way into it. He did die for the entire world, but not all the world is saved. No, only those who, only those who repent and accept Christ Jesus into their heart. Is it a work in progress? Absolutely. But do we need to check if I'm doing the same thing over and over and over again that I know is sin and I keep saying, I'm sorry? Mm -mm. You're not sorry. You're not. Because genuine conviction and repentance does cause us to turn away from that. God didn't give us a, a get out of jail card to keep doing the same thing over and over again. You know, when my children were growing up and they were babies, they behaved in a certain way. And because of their ignorance, you know, as you said, Jed, I pointed out, don't touch that. Well, they touched the thing and burnt their fingers. They had a consequence. And it a real, mm -mm, I'm not going to touch that. Mama knew what she was talking about. But after they got old, I have a 30-year-old son and a 40-year-old daughter. If I'm still trying to tell her, don't touch the stove and him, something is wrong. Something is wrong. And so it is with God. After a certain point, God says, as Krista says, I'm not even hearing that because you're carrying that in your heart and you love that more than you love me. The other thing is they say God is love. Yes, he is. But he's also righteousness. He's also holy. And his holy righteousness requires that he bring righteous judgment. We need to understand that when they say Christ paid the price for our sins, past, present, and future, mm -mm. you need to allow the word of God and the Holy Spirit to bring conviction and then we agree with God in reference to our sins. And the Holy Spirit takes us in to repenting for our sins. God bought a people out of Egypt that had been custom, they had been raised, they had been trained in a nation that served all kind of gods, doing all kind of things. Everything was a God in Egypt. So he gave them to law so that they could understand the difference in their behavior, the difference in what their mindset should be unto a holy, righteous God that is far superior than the cow God, the moon, the stars, the water, and the sun, and even the fleas, whatever they were worshiping, because they worship it all. So God says, there is a distinction that I am bringing between you and the people you used to hang out with. 
That is the same today. Amen. There is a distinction that should be that comes from being a believer of Jesus Christ, a follower of God, a person of the Lord. Amen. And I always believe this, and it should be so clearly seen that you don't need to have to put on a T-shirt and a bumper sticker for somebody to know. If I got to follow you to a car to determine that you're a Christian, something is wrong. If I got to wait for T-shirt day at work for you to tell me something is wrong. There is a lifestyle, and that's what he was displaying in Exodus through the things that he was giving them because he already knew they couldn't do it, just like you and I. They couldn't do it, but with him, they could do all things, and the same it is with you and I. Pastor Sylvia, I just want to read this one scripture um, from Hebrews just at where you're at. I think it is just such a, just an important point that we're on, but in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26, it says, for if we sin willfully, so this is after the cross, if we continue in our sin, if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, this is what it says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses's law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is a, It's very sober reading this because really what this and this what it's saying here is just like what Pastor Sylvia said earlier about, you know, if we mess up. We're, it doesn't mean we're not okay and we're not still secure because that's why the Bible says, there, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk according to the spirit. And then it has a comma after that, not a period, not according to the flesh, because it says if we walk according to the flesh, we will die. You know, and so here the, the key word in the scripture I just read, if we sin willfully, and even when Jesus said, and I believe it's Matthew 7, where he's talking about many are going to say on that last day, Lord, Lord, you know, let us in. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. But he used this word practiced it as if it's a lifestyle of sinning. You're continuing willful sin. Like you just disregard any reverence or fear of the Lord. And, you know, and I, I just want to say, I think that's another reason, too, that many will just dismiss the need to obey what God has said, because um, we, we've sometimes in our culture, there's just a lack of fear of the Lord. When we know the Bible says that it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. It's the fear of the Lord that keeps us from sinning. And that's why these things, Paul says, were written down as examples to us, probably to show us so that we would have fear. Even Moses said when the Lord came to him, them in that with the lightning and the dark clouds and all of this on uh, Mount Sinai, he says, he appeared to you this way so that you would be afraid and not sin against him. He wants us to fear him and it's a good thing. He wants us to keep us 
on a path of holiness. He's like, I'm trying to help you as you're coming from milk to meat to stay pure, you know, and to learn through the word and through the sanctification process. Amen. So let's open it up for other folks to jump in here. Anyone, I know, Rachel, you've, you've posted some things in the chat. I just want to open it up. Anyone have any questions or thoughts as we're having this conversation? I, I've been reading from, just like I posted in the chat, from Genesis and these first five books. I am blown away by, by what I see. And I've been in church. I've been a born again for, for quite some time. But the things I'm reading today, it's like my eyes are being opened and I'm asking myself, where has all this been? Mm. Why wasn't I taught these things before? I've been in church, we've been, we pray and we read, we read the Bible, but there are some truths that I'm discovering now that I see we are not practicing. So I am I should say at some point I'm confused. At some point I'm concerned. I'm scared. I don't know what to do. And some of the, some of the things seem like, um, no, this was the law. And so when I read Deuteronomy, Exodus, Leviticus, and then I come to Romans and Hebrews and what Paul wrote, I sometimes get lost. I get confused. Because then we have a place which says um, it was the law. God, Jesus, when he came, he abolished the law. Maybe I'm just confused, but I know that the law wasn't abolished. That's what I know now. So why is it that we are not practicing that that was um, told to Moses? Because the... In, 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 I think, Exodus and Leviticus, it says some of these things, some of the commands that were said, it said at the end of some of them, it says, do this as a lasting ordinance. And when you see Jesus's uh, walk, you see that he used to go to like Sakoth, the uh, festival of tabernacles. He used to go to these festivals. So how come today, I've been in church and we are not observing these things. It confuses me. It makes me like, it makes me feel, what are we doing? What is this Christianity work? Are we confused? Are we lost? Are we? Yeah, so many questions in my mind. Those are incredibly important questions, Rachel. And I've been right where you are. And there's an answer. We can't explain everything on this call, <laughs> but, you know, the, the, in essence, the Gentile church um, made it illegal to practice a lot of those, uh, like Passover, for example, when the original Jewish apostles left Jerusalem, many of them were martyred. Gentiles came into the kingdom and they came into their power and they actually made it a penalty to continue to fellowship with the Jewish people, even in some cases unto death. And so there's evidence of the early church celebrating Passover until about 325 AD when the emperor Constantine in Rome made it illegal to celebrate the Passover anymore. And, and so we have grown up with really 2000 years, basically, of confused theology. So there's a reason why you're confused. 
is because there's unfortunately been a lot of confusion. And the only way to get unconfused is to go back to the source material and read the whole story because God, he's the same today, yesterday, yesterday, today, and forever. God is the same. It's one story. And, you know, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus, if, if you look at the, the biblical, I'm just going to make one point about the biblical feasts because people will relate to them as the Jewish feasts. They're, God never calls the feasts the Jewish feasts. He calls them his, he says, these are my appointed times and seasons. And there's nowhere in the Bible that God says his calendar has changed. His calendar is a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar, but we are on a solar calendar. And so there's a lot of reasons why I think the enemy has just done a very good job of convincing the church to separate from Israel. When the truth is, is that the church is Jew and Gentile joined together by faith in Jesus, joined together, Jews that believe in Jesus, Gentiles that believe in Jesus. That's the church. That's the ecclesia. That's the people of faith in the new covenant. And we were supposed to walk together. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all those biblical feasts. So whether we're talking about Sukkot, that's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You know, in the Jew Jewish tradition, Sukkot is when Moses comes down with the law. We're in Exodus. When he first comes down with the law, that's Sukkot. They celebrate the giving of the law. And if you remember, 3,000 people die because they're worshiping the golden calf. How many people are born again on Pentecost, which was also Shavuot? Because the Holy Spirit came, 3,000 people are brought to life. They're saved. Is God saying something there? I think he is. The letter of the law brings death, but the spirit brings life, right? And so these feasts and festivals that you're talking about, Rachel, are rich with meaning and depth and truth, and Jesus is pointed to them all. Amen? And Sukkot, Passover starts the biblical cycle, and Sukkot finishes it. That's the last feast, and Sukkot points to a time of fellowship with God forever. We remember our time in the desert. We remember our wanderings and his faithfulness, but it points to a time where we're going to all enjoy the wedding supper of the lamb and be together forever because of who Jesus is. But there is a lot of confusion as we walk out because the church hasn't practiced these things for many, 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 many years. Because I hope that is at least a start to answer your question. I want to also add to that, Jed, that there's confirmation of what you're saying when we read the scriptures about the millennial reign of Christ. And that's actually part of something the Bible says that during the 1000 year reign of Christ, after he sets his feet down on the Mount of Olives and we're all with him, he's tabernacling with his people, that will have to happen every year. He says that they will no longer um, neglect to keep this feast, that they will come up year after year for the Feast of Tabernacles. So we see that's that in right. God's heart, that he wants this. These were ordinances that he says, you know, you're going to celebrate these forever. Um, and you're, you're going to, I want you to tell your kids and grandkids about what I did for you in Egypt. And so it a, it's a family celebration. Um, these were done around the family table. These were done breaking bread. These were done with story. Uh, eat the bitter herbs. Remember this because our slavery was bitter. So eat the bitter herbs with horseradish. You know, if you've ever been to a Passover Seder, it's rich with meaning. Um, and that's obviously where Jesus instituted communion. Uh, when he breaks the bread and blesses the cup of wine, 
that's right in the middle of the Passover meal. So, but a lot of this has been lost and is being restored to an understanding in the church in our day. And I think, um, Jed, also that um, Rachel brought up a valid point that we want to make sure that we capture as well. And that's why we encourage you to read your Bible. Read it. Do not be spoon fed. Don't let someone else chew it up and spit it out for you. And you receive that as the truth. Read it. Paul even gives us in the New Testament, the Bereans, the Bereans, they judged everything that Paul, that came out of his mouth by the word. That's how they knew, okay, he's good to go. But unfortunately, as Jed was saying, during the time of Constantine, he made it illegal for you to even say the name of the Jews, less long. Christ, let's not have anything to do with the Jewish traditions and the customs. And when you look at the church history, Martin Luther went off the track somewhere. So if you don't know those things and you are practicing their doctrines and believing this uh, theologies and things, you won't know unless you read the word and judge it by the word itself and say something is amiss. And that's why I know there are many, many different versions of the Bible, but always go back to the original and make sure. And if it is a version and you can't determine where in scripture it was found, then I caution you, don't make that your only living, breathing, reading Bible. Stay with what we know to be the truth, you know, and the truth will tell you whether this is still in line with what God has said and what came from God. And it's unfortunately that as a result of that, the festivals of the Lord, the feast of the Lord was outlawed, was outlawed pretty much in our churches, but the pagan holidays and the pagan traditions were embraced. And we find them in our churches today. And just to put a bow on this for Rachel, um, on the Tour of Truth, there's an actual video series that I did called The Table, and it, it's a seven-part video series, about 20 minutes per video, and there's, uh, you, can, you can watch those videos. It goes into some of the church history that we're talking about, because many, many, many Christians aren't taught church history in church. Um, I've had to go on that journey of kind of following through, and like what, what Sylvia is talking about, and doing some research um, encourage everybody to read the Bible and look at some church history. It's pretty eye-opening um, when it comes to some of these things. So that's on the tour of truth, Rachel. Uh, you can find it. It's been posted there. So if that would be helpful to anyone else too, it's called, again, it's called the table. And also while you mentioned that, Jed, I want everybody to take note of that as well, that Jed leads a ministry called Pilgrim Way Ministries which he's got a website with a lot of other content on there as well. So feel free to follow that. He's got a podcast with that as well. Any other thoughts uh, on what we've been meditating on as we're chewing on the giving of the law, God's again, love, order, beauty, um, Moses and his face shining. Uh, <laughs> any other uh, thoughts out there that's stirring in people's hearts? So as people are thinking, um, as I read, uh, the the first 
five books where the law was given. Is it right to say that I want to to do exactly what was given in the law, even the various laws, leave alone the Ten Commandments, but also the various laws that were mentioned? Am I right to say I, I, I have to follow each and every one of them, doing them, and before I was told, deeds, the, your, if, don't just think that your works will make God love you more. Uh, of which, we are also going to be judged by our deeds. So am I right to say that if, if I read what is in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and I do it to the dot, I'm not just working from the flesh, but I'm doing them to the Lord. Because after all, he says, do this to the Lord. What I, I want to encourage you, there's a, in, in the book of Galatians, Paul tackles some of this, uh, the wrestle between following, faith, it's faith and legalism. And he deals with it pretty head on in the book of Galatians. Um, number one, there's certain laws that you simply can't fulfill right now because there is no temple. So many of the ceremonial ritual laws that are going to, that we're going to read in Leviticus don't actually apply today. Um, there are some changes that have occurred because we're actually in the new covenant. And so, you know, what I think is really, really, really important is going back to what Sylvia said earlier and touching in the, in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, Jesus actually raises the bar because what you have is Pharisees and people who were obeying the, the letter of the law but their hearts were far from God. And so, yes, they weren't murdering someone. They weren't mur committing murder, but they were hating people in their heart. And so Jesus, and he would chastise them and say, look, you'll tithe. He says, you'll tithe the mint and the, and the dill, but you'll neglect the weightier things of the law. And so he, was, he actually corrects them. He says, you, you, you're not taking care of your aging parents. It's what he confronts them on. Uh, you know, like you'll you'll give me your your you'll be so specific about making sure you give me your mint and your dill, but your your mom and dad who I told you to honor need help and you're not helping them. And so, Jesus, the law of love, calls us to love what God loves. And so, it's not about following the letter of the law. And Paul talks about the feasts and festivals, and he says, "Don't judge each other on what." sabbaths and feasts you observe and so we have to understand people are in different places in their journey and god is a god of liberty he's not a god of license he's not a god of legalism the holy spirit is there to guide us into his truth and he's helping us along the way so it's not about a specifically obeying the letter of the law it's about walking with the holy spirit um, as you walk this out, and Lord, how do I not commit murder in my heart? Maybe there's somebody we need to forgive because we're offended. Or maybe we're struggling with lust and saying, I'm not committing adultery, but I'm not watching things I should watch. Have that conversation with the Holy Spirit, clean up that part of our lives. Like these things are, are part of our sanctification process as we walk with the Lord and grow in that process with Him. So I want to just encourage you read Galatians. We are not justified by, by God by our outward adherence to the law. It is by faith alone. Jew and Gentile, faith in Christ alone is what we are saved by. So we can talk about salvation. 
we can talk about righteousness. Um, you know, the, the thief on the cross never did one act of righteousness, but he was saved, right? And so we need to make a distinction. If we're asking, do I need to obey the law in order to be saved? No. In order to be saved, faith in Christ alone is the only way you get there. However, when we walk with Christ and we love what he loves, the righteousness level in our life should start to go up. We should stop hating people in our heart. We should be more forgiving. We should be more patient. We should, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, that should start to manifest. And if it's not manifesting, we need to ask ourselves why. So I hope that's helpful. Amen. <clears throat> Please, um, speaking to uh, Sister Rachel's point, I think one of the scriptures that can be very, very, very helpful uh, because I don't know who goes by their daily lives trying to remember all the 300, how many, 600 and, oh, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. You can, you can, you can borderline leave. 613? Yes. You can it's borderline the same number leave. of seeds in the pomegranate. Amen. <laughs> you can essentially borderline live a life of paranoia because every move of yours will be wondering whether or not you're breaking a law. Amen. But I believe that uh, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 13, will tell us that um, love, <laughs> I mean, if I may read it all, please. Um, Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever love, loves others has fulfilled the law. Uh, I know you and I know that. A fulfillment is being able to do what you've been told to do. If you're sent to a mission and you've successfully complete that mission, you have fulfilled the requirements of that mission. So if you have done the law, you have fulfilled it. And Paul is telling us here that we fulfill the law when we love. So we don't have to worry about remembering everything. And like Pastor Jed said, if we are led by the Holy Spirit, he will not lead us to break the law. He will lead us to obey the law. So that is one very, very important criteria that a Christian should have because that's what Jesus promised unto us, a helper who will, and one of the works of the Holy Spirit is remembering us of the scriptures, amen? And if we continue to read the commandment, this is when it really gets a little bit detailed. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not cover it, and whatever other command they may be, amen, they may be, um, um, are, are summed up uh, in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Sister Rachel, as we go through the new commandment, you will find that if you love your neighbor as yourself, you have fulfilled the commandments in essence. And this is what Paul is saying. This is my understanding of what Paul is saying. And I believe this is, this is the, what the Holy Spirit is teaching me. Love does not harm. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Amen. So if you just walk in love, you have fulfilled all those 613 commandments, provided you also are led by the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's what I get from this. And that's so good, Terrence and Rachel and everyone else. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 is a description of that love. Um, the Bible highlights, you know, if God is love, then 1 Corinthians 13 is a description of God and the way that he loves. And so that's a great chapter to pray as you're reading that chapter to ask the Holy Spirit, 
what does it mean? Lo- love is not boastful or proud, doesn't insist on its own way, patient, kind, doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Like we start to meditate on those things. You know, it's possible for us to have the mind of Christ. He wants us to have his mind, his thoughts. And the way we have those thoughts is to begin to go into his word and ask him for help. That's why the Holy Spirit came, like Terrence is saying, to help us understand and to transform us, conform us to the image of Jesus. And so 1 Corinthians 13 is another great passage to meditate on when it comes to how do we love our neighbor. And I think it goes right in line with what Jesus said. The two greatest commandments that I give to you are, when there was asking him, he said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and might. Love your neighbor as yourself. When we genuinely love, not the way the world loves, but according to God, because the love comes from God, then you're not going to do any harm to your neighbor. You are not going to steal from your neighbor. You won't sleep with your neighbor's husband, wife, children. You will not do those things. That's why, and as Krista alluded to earlier, what keeps us from sinning? Is our love for God. God, I, I, I don't want to hurt you. I love you. I know there's not a time when you are not with me, when you're not seeing what I am doing, the things I used to want to do because I was in my own selfish me. I don't want to do those things anymore. I want to please you. And that's not a hundred and fifty-five written laws of anything. Why? Because the law itself does not work. You know that for those of us who drive. Now, some of you may drive the speed limit, but go ahead and shame the devil and tell the truth. You don't. When you see that it says 55, if the authority is not there uh, and you don't see the cop anywhere around and you say, "Mm, 60 feels pretty good. Maybe I'll take it to 65 or I'm in a hurry because I left home 15 minutes late. That doesn't change anyone. But when you love God and God says don't, then that's what causes you not to do it, not to do it. So that is, and how do we encompass and grow in that love? The Holy Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit himself. I love the Lord, but I will tell you all, my daughter lives in Tampa, it's an hour and a half from me. I have to remember Jesus when I'm out there and I don't see the police, amen. I see the 70 70 miles an hour. I tell the truth now, I'm just saying, don't get behind me when I'm driving, especially when I need. So I see it. But that law does not stop me. If I can go to five miles over and I do it, I set my little cruise control. I say, well, if they stop me, at least I'm only five miles over. That's what the law does. But love, love is a different thing. And that's why God emphasizes love. Remember, he was showing them because he brought them out of a system that everything goes. And he was showing them what holiness looks like. Same thing he does for you and I, because we were as much a part of the world as they were a part of Egypt. And as Jed said earlier, he alluded to it. So I'm going to break it down for you. You can take the person out of Egypt. 
but you can't take Egypt out of them. You can take the person out of the club, but you can't take the hip hop out of them. It's a process of time. But the more they love God and the more he pours his love out on you, then the more you won't want to do it. Simple as that. And that's when you know he's writing it on your heart and he's writing it on your mind. Because I'm telling you, when I was out there, I wasn't thinking about those things. But once I got in a relationship, intimacy, and without me even knowing it, living and reading his word, he started writing that thing, writing it on my heart and on my mind. And so now when I find myself somewhere and I I got I, 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 no, no. And I ain't talking about in the club, so don't y'all go there. You're not going to find me. I'm just talking about in general. Amen. And there are times when I am driving and I go past the 75 and the Holy Spirit say, you know, you need to slow that down, right? I said, oh, yes, Lord, I got it. Love, 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 love. That's why we do what we do. Love the Lord, love the Lord, and he will cause you to do the right thing. I just want to emphasize the order of that. That is so important because there are some people that will tend to focus on loving people first and not loving God. And he gave the first commandment as love the Lord with all your heart, because if we're not doing that part, we're not going to be able to love people. Well, you know, if we love in the Lord with all our heart first, then we're going to learn how to love other people. So good. I know we're coming up on nine and I want to be faithful to our, our time tonight. But I, I feel just the Holy Spirit kind of reminding me. Um, the Bible says that God disciplines those that he loves. Like a father. No discipline feels good when you're going through it. Um, and if you're like me and like you're talking about, Sylvia is talking to, talking to us as a daughter. I know those conversations with the Lord when he taps you on the shoulder and says, just gives you that look. You just feel it sometimes like that little prick of, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. Or whatever it is, be encouraged. God disciplines those that he loves. And he's teaching us and training us, just like our earthly parents who were not perfect. No earthly parent is, but God is perfect. And he knows that we're but dust. And He's already, like we've been talking about, he's made the way for us. He's paved the way. He's opened up the way of life. And as we love him, as Chris just said, Jesus, help me, help me love you and let your love flow through me. And I, I love this metaphor, and this has always helped me in my life. You know, there's the day that, that I met the Lord and he came in and I was conscious of him. He was moving in my life before I ever thought of him. And it was like we had the 50 watt light bulb on in my life. And there was like, oh, man, I am a wreck. I need to repent for all these things that this 50 watt light bulb has shown. Lord, forgive me for these things. And he's like, that's really good. And he unscrews the 50 watt light bulb. And he's like, let's put the 200 watt light bulb in. And then you realize, oh, no, I'm really dirty. With the 200 watt light bulb, I see even more in my life. And then he's like, that's good. He unscrews that, puts a 500 watt light bulb in. And turns on the light and you're like, oh, Lord, I am, a, like Peter said, I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. But Jesus says, no, I've called you. And, you know, the closer you get to a holy God, by definition, the more informed you're going to be of your own shortcomings. 
It's just the way it is. The older we get, the more we realize how dependent we are on him and how very, very little we actually have that we, we can't take credit for anything. To God alone be the glory because he is who he is, the God of love. He's a God of order and he's a God of beauty. And so it's great to be together tonight to think about these beautiful stories in Exodus and the covenant keeping God who walked with Israel through all of their ups and downs and still is faithful. We can look across the ocean and realize just like he said he would do it. I'm going to scatter you to the four corners of the earth, but I'm going to regather you back. Deuteronomy 30. We can look across and see, wow, look at the faithfulness of God to perform his word. And if he's faithful to Israel, he'll be faithful to us because that is the very nature of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'm going to pray us out and we will continue on our journey. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, the law is complicated and nuanced and way more smarter people than all of us on this phone, on this call today have talked about it, written about it, debated about it, theologized about it. We just come humbly before you and say, as your word says, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And we love you with what is in our heart, and we ask for your help. I ask for your help. Lord, help me to love you more each and every day as we walk. And we invite that gentle discipline, sometimes that, that severe discipline that we need to grow as your sons and daughters. For you say the one who bears fruit is pruned that they would bear even more fruit. And so you prune us as the vine dresser in your kingdom. And so, Lord, thank you for my brothers and sisters and pray, Lord, as we study the word, your seeds would just grow in our hearts um, and that we would bear fruit, not for our glory, but for yours alone. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys. Great to be with you tonight. Amen. Bye-bye. Shalom. Bye-bye. Shalom. Shalom.